Take your Bibles this morning. We'll be in John chapter 17. Aren't you excited that we're beginning a new chapter today? Amen. John chapter 17. After seven weeks in John 16, we considered at the end of that, the verse there, it's a great verse, Jesus gave us when he said, These things have I spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Amen. Amen. What a great verse. He is our peace. Remember that peace is not the absence of tribulation. Peace is Christ through His presence through the tribulation. And so we are going to have tribulation, mark it down, but we're commanded to be of good cheer because God has overcome the world. And listen, greater is He that is in you than he that is in the world. We have a lot to be excited about because we're on the winning side. Now, we are currently studying the longest discourse of Christ contained in all the Gospels. This particular discourse began in chapter 13, and it'll go all the way through the end of this chapter. It is often called the Upper Room Discourse, which is maybe a bit misleading because only two chapters are actually in the Upper Room. Chapters 15 through this chapter are taking place from the walk from the Upper Room to the Garden of Gethsemane. As a reminder, here in our text, we are in the night that Judas Iscariot will betray our Lord. It's going to happen in the next chapter. So we are very near to the events surrounding our redemption. We are right at the point where Christ is going to be put on trial and eventually crucified for us. I would imagine at some point in your life, you have heard the phrase, the Lord's Prayer. Many will use that term, the Lord's Prayer, in connection with the prayer that Jesus taught His disciples. In Luke chapter 11 and verse 1, the question was asked, Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus responds with this, When ye pray, say, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so in earth. Give us day by day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now that's the account in Luke. You might have noticed a little variance from some of the other accounts. That prayer is an example of how you and I need to pray, but it's not the Lord's prayer, because the Lord never had to pray and ask for forgiveness for his sins. Our Lord was sinless. We would not have salvation if our Lord had not been sinless. And so we have to believe in the sinless Lord or else our salvation did not come to pass because it took a perfect sacrifice. It took perfect blood in order for our sins to be forgiven and washed away. And so it's not the Lord's prayer there that we often hear called the Lord's prayer. It's just an example of what we are to pray teach us how to pray, a model to follow, and therefore a lot of people just call it the model prayer. I don't think it's necessarily wrong to pray that prayer if you're praying it from a sincere heart. But don't just pray that prayer and end up doing what religions do and pray it in vain repetition because it has no effectiveness at that point. It's not coming from our heart. It's just something we say out of memory 
And I don't think God gets a whole lot from that, if you will. And I think what we need to do is we need to learn to open up and share our heart with God. And oftentimes we think it's not a manly characteristic to open up our heart and be emotional and to share our feelings. Amen. You know, guys, if you have a wife, she might want to hear that you love her every now and then. Now, if you're like, amen, sis, if you're like me, of course I love you. There's a roof over your head. There's food on the table, clothes on your back. There's gas in the tank. Hey, man, that's how my dad said, of course I love you, son. You're still alive, aren't you? So it wouldn't hurt to just share that is what I'm saying. Open your heart up. We need to open our heart up to God. You say, well, if God knows my heart, then why do I need to share my heart with God? Because he wants to hear your heart. He wants to. By the way, He died for that access. He died for that. He shed His blood so that we can have access into the holiest. God says, call unto me. God wants us to cry out to Him. God wants us to pour our soul out to Him. When Hannah prayed, the Bible says she poured her soul out. The Bible says we need to pour our heart out to God. The Bible says in Psalm 62, 8, Trust in Him at all times, ye people. Pour your heart out before Him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. Lamentations 2.19 says, Arise, cry out in the night, in the beginning of the watches. Pour out thine heart like water before the face of the Lord. Lift up thy hands toward Him for the life of thy young children that faint for hunger in the top of every street. God wants to hear your heart. God doesn't want just a typical prayer that we say over and over in vain. But God wants to hear from you. God wants you to hear your heart. Because when you pray, it reveals to you where your heart's at because of what you're praying for. When you pray, if you'll take stock of what you're praying for, you'll find out how your walk with God is. You say, well, I'm not really praying. Ah, that's a problem. For those of you who are praying... What are you praying for? Because that reveals where your heart's at, where your walk with God really is. When someone prays, you get a glimpse into their heart. When somebody prays in public, we get a a glimpse into what's on their heart. We get a feel for what's going on in their heart, their soul. And there are several areas in the Bible where our Lord prayed But if there's one prayer of Christ upon which we could hang the label, the Lord's Prayer, it would be this chapter, John chapter 17. And just like Jesus couldn't pray the model prayer because He is sinless, you and I cannot pray the majority of this prayer because we are sinners. And we'll see that as we go through this study of this chapter. Now, normally I wouldn't do this, but because prayer gives us a glimpse into the heart, as we introduce this chapter today, I want us to read the entire chapter right now, and you can just really sense Christ's heart as he prays here in John chapter 17. So bear with me, let's read this entire chapter this morning. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on the earth. 
I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Now, they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are all thine. And all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee. Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And now I come to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on my name through their word. And now the prayer turns to us today. He prays for those who will believe on him through his word. Verse 21, that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me will be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me. And I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. Isn't that a great prayer? <laughs> Amen. It puts our prayer life to shame, I think. Now, I don't know how long we'll be in this chapter. Brother Long and I were talking one day, and he was telling me Paris Reedhead was preaching through this chapter. And either he told me a sermon to listen to, and I heard Paris Reedhead say it, or Brother Long was telling me. But he was in this chapter for 39 weeks and still wasn't done with it. Now, I have no intentions of being in this chapter for that long. But I mention that because I want you to understand the depth that is contained in this chapter. There's a lot of richness here. If we really wanted to dive into it, we certainly could spend a lot of time here. And so it really is an amazing prayer. Jesus here, having taught his disciples over the last four chapters, he now prays for them. And can I tell you, when you teach somebody God's word, when you give somebody God's word, you need to pray for them as well. Amen. We need to pray that the Holy Spirit would work in their life, make the word known to them, guide them into truth. We have a responsibility not only to give the word of God, 
but to pray for those for whom the Word of God is given to. And Jesus here, He teaches them the Word, but then He's also praying for them as well. If you teach Sunday school, you need to pray for your students. If you preach, then you should pray for the listeners. If you witness to someone, you should pray for them to understand. Prayer gets us invested more in their life. We may think we're invested because we give them the Word and that's good. But what will really kind of get us personal, get us invested, is when we start praying for them. Because I think then we tend to follow up a little bit more. And we tend to go and we ask follow-up questions about what we've been praying for. Maybe somebody gives a prayer request here on Wednesday night. You pray for them. You're a lot more likely to go to them at some point and say, hey, how did that work out? How did that go? Did God answer that prayer? Can I keep praying? And so we get invested when we pray for others. And as Jesus prays here, we find Him lifting up His eyes toward heaven as He addresses His heavenly Father. And there are two observations I want to make here. One is fact, the other is my opinion. First, we see where we are to direct our prayers. We direct our prayers to God the Father. We do not direct our prayer to angels. We do not direct our prayers to men, living or dead. We do not direct our prayers to some shrine. We don't direct our prayers to a wailing wall. But our prayers are to go directly to God Himself. Second, my opinion, we see the manner in which Christ prayed here. He lifts His eyes up to heaven. Now, Christ lifted up His eyes to heaven when He prayed at the tomb of Lazarus as He's about to raise Him from the dead. But in my opinion, special note is made of this because as Jesus' hour is now nearing, He's lifting His eyes up to heaven because that's where His help and His strength is going to have to come. I believe He's looking toward the direction from which His help comes. And you say, well, we should always be humble in our prayer. I understand that. And when Jesus gets to the Garden of Gethsemane, He's going to bow, He's going to kneel, He's going to pray. Here He lifts up His eyes to heaven. Have you ever been in that situation where you just look up to God because you know that that's, that's where your help has to come in that moment? You need God. I think of Peter a lot when he's, in the, he's walking on the water. He gets his eyes off of Christ. He starts sinking. And where does he look? He looks right up at Christ. Lord, save me. There are times when we are needing help and all we can do is look up to the direction of our Heavenly Father and seek for His help. Psalm 121, verses 1 and 2. It says, I will lift up mine eyes upon the hills from whence cometh my help. My help cometh from the Lord. As Jesus' time on earth here is about to come to an end. And it's going to be a violent death. He turns His eyes heavenward where His heavenly Father dwells because He's seeking for the help He needs to accomplish the Father's will. In Psalm 22, it's a great psalm that begins with Christ on the cross. It's a prophecy of His crucifixion. We hear Jesus pray in Psalm 22:19, But be not thou far from me, O Lord, O my strength. Haste thee to help me. And we can learn from Christ's example that Whatever the work is God has called us to do, God must be our help in that work. God must be the source of our help. Maybe God is calling you to be a father or a mother. You're, you are a parent. 
God has to be your source of help. Maybe God's calling you to be a better husband, a better wife. God has to be your source of help. Maybe God is calling you to be in business. Then God will have to be the source of your help. I've seen those who have cried out for God to help them reach a certain level in life. They're aspiring business people or whatever. Maybe they're aspiring leaders in the military. They cry out for help to reach a certain level. They attain that level and then all of a sudden it's like God no longer exists. But in trying to get to a certain point, they're busy crying out to God because they know God must be the source. The Bible still says promotion is from the Lord. And so they cry out to God seeking for that help, seeking for that promotion. And then when they get there, they forget that God is their source of help still. Listen, don't forget God in the process. Amen. It's interesting how people can know God is my source, but then when I get what I want, I no longer remember God. I don't understand that, but that's how we get. You know, maybe God this morning, He's calling you to step up in church a little bit. Get more involved. Amen. Listen, we always need the next generation coming on board. Right? And so maybe God's calling you to step it up. Maybe God's calling you into the ministry in some form of Christian service. And while we're all to serve God, maybe some of you are being called into full-time, as we say, Christian service. We're all in full-time Christian service, but maybe God's calling you into a full-time position like that. God must be the source of your help. If we're to glorify God in whatever God has called us to do, then God must be the source of our help. Psalm 79.9 says, Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of thy name. Where does your help come from? Who are you trusting in today? Psalm 146 verses 3 through 5 say, Put not your trust in princes, nor in the sons of man in whom there is no help. His breath goeth forth, he returneth to his earth. In that very day his thoughts perish. And then it goes on to say this, Happy is the man that hath the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God. Where's your help at? Don't put your hope in men. They will fail you. Put your hope in God. He will help you. And the reason I believe Jesus here, he's turned his eyes heavenward to the Father to look to him as the source of the help is because in verse 1, we see Jesus begins his prayer by saying, Father, the hour is come. Now that term hour doesn't always mean a literal 60 minute hour. It's often used to just refer to a span of time and it can be various amounts of time, but just a span of time. We might say someone arrived at just the right hour. Here, the term hour is used to denote the events surrounding our Lord's sacrifice. Beginning with His trial and all that's going to take place there, His scourging and, and all the way to Calvary, this term hour here is being used to talk about all those events that will surround that. And we know from his betrayal to his death, it was a lot more than one hour. And so I'm just simply saying this term hour here doesn't mean 60 minutes. We find that this hour is emphasized throughout John's gospel account. Three times in John, we read Jesus's hour had not yet come. In two of those occurrences, the religious Jews were ready to stone Christ, wanted to kill him. But in both of those cases, the Bible makes the point of saying his hour had not yet come, indicating that that term hour was associated with his death. 
Then two times, when it was less than a week from Jesus going to Calvary, he begins to say, the hour is come. In John 12, 27, he says, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I unto this hour. And then two more times in this discourse leading up to this prayer, we read about his hour again. In John 13, 1, it says, Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father. And in John 16, 32, Jesus says, Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come. And now we see here in John 17, 1, Jesus prays, The hour is come. Now, why all this emphasis on the hour and the timing of this hour? It's important that it's emphasized because it's a reminder to us that all these events that are about to unfold have been planned from the beginning. That none of this just happened. Amen. This was all planned. It was all preordained by God. It reminds us that Jesus was not murdered. He willingly gave His life for us. He laid down His life. He gave up the ghost. It reminds us that He willingly became a ransom for many. It reminds us of the love that He has for us. Jesus' life wasn't snuffed out early because He was hated by the council or because the Romans didn't like Him. But Jesus would give His life right on time at the very hour that God had predetermined from the foundation of the world. Because Jesus is the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. It was all planned. It was not an accident. It was not a mistake. It was not a plan B. But it was all planned. And the Bible is making special note here saying, the hours come. Now all that God had preordained, all that God said was going to come to pass, it's about to happen. I remember some years ago I was reading through this chapter and I... I got stuck at verse 1 as I began to read. I don't know what was different about that time reading it, but I read verse 1 and I just broke down and I just wept. And I mean, I was bawling and I, I just got over, I was overcome with the idea that Christ here, He's about to be arrested. He's going to be betrayed by a man who was with Him for three and a half years. A man that was in the twelve. And He's going to betray Him into the hands of sinners. Then Jesus is going to get this sham of a trial. They're going to bring false witnesses against Him. Then they're going to scourge Him, which some people die just in that. They were going to scourge Him, which they did. They took a crown of thorns and they pressed it upon His head. They were tearing the beard off of His face. They were mocking Him as a king. Then they lead him up to Calvary where they're going to nail him to a cross and he's going to be crucified there for you and me. And as I thought about those events which are about to come to pass, here's Jesus in the moment that his hour is coming and he prays, Father, I just want you to be glorified. And that just amazes me. I think sometimes we get so selfish in our prayers. And we often pray for outs. We pray for circumstances to change. But Jesus here, He just prays, Father, would you glorify me that I might glorify you? And that's the goal. That should be our desire in life, is to bring glory to the Father. 
Jesus here, He's about to be so beaten that Isaiah 52.14 says, Many were astonished at thee. His visage was so marred more than any man, and His form more than the sons of men. He was going to be beaten beyond recognition. Not for anything He had done, but for you and for me. Because we're sinners. He was being beaten for our sins. And as His hours closing in here, He prays to God knowing He's going to be tortured in the process. He knows the immense amount of pain He's going to have to suffer. Most of all, He knows that the Father is going to have to forsake Him when He becomes sin for us. And Jesus here simply prays, Father, glorify the Son that I might glorify Thee. He's not deterred. He sets His face like a flint. He fixes His eyes towards the cross. He knows all that He's about to endure. He is focused that God the Father will get the glory through all of this. And I'd like to ask you this morning, why do you seek to be glorified? So I don't seek to be glorified. Well, you may and you may not. Why do you seek it? Are your motives right? Is it so that the Father may be glorified? You'll never rightly glorify God unless you realize everything is about Him and you learn to die to self. Because this thing ain't about us. This is about Him. All we are is due to Him. He purchased us. We are bought by Him. He owns our life. And we are to give that life back to Him for His glory. And as children who have been adopted into God's family, we have been made joint heirs with Christ, I do not think that there's anything wrong as God's children if we would learn to pray, Father, glorify me that I might glorify the Father. Well, that doesn't sound right to me. Well, stick with me here. Matthew 5.16 says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. It's okay to glorify God in this life, to have God glorify us if the intent is God to get to glory so that others may have an opportunity to be saved. We ought to use our life to reach more people for Christ. I don't believe there's nothing wrong with somebody desiring a wider platform. I don't believe there's nothing wrong with somebody desiring a position of authority. I think it'd be a good thing if we had some godly people in influence today. Amen. It'd be wonderful if we had a president that walked with God, that lifted up Christ, that wasn't ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it's the power of God unto salvation. Wouldn't that be wonderful? It'd be wonderful if we had some godly judges today. What a blessing that would be. There's nothing wrong with praying for that. We need godly employees in the workforce. For those of you who are bosses, we need godly bosses in the workforce that can influence their employees for Christ. We need godly military leaders. We need godly politicians. We need godly fathers. We need godly mothers. People that can influence others. We need godliness to prevail in this nation. So when's the last time you ask God to glorify you that you may glorify the Father? This ought to be the desire and goal of every child of God. After all that God has done for us, we owe Him everything. And with this life, we should seek to glorify God. And listen now, not only in this life, but also in our death. Christ is not long for this world in our text. And yet, He is still zeroed in 
on bringing glory to God the Father. And for some, it's a strange thing to think of us glorifying God in our death. But that's exactly what our Lord is going to do. Through His death, He glorified the Father. You say, well, how is that possible? Well, God had promised mankind a Savior was going to arrive all the way back in Genesis 3.15. The law speaks of Christ. The Psalms speak of Christ. The prophets speak of Christ. And it was all foretold that this was going to come to pass. And all of these types, pictures, figures, and shadows. And here's the Messiah on the scene. And all that's written now is about to come to pass. And Jesus asked the Father to glorify Him as the Son so that the world may see that God kept His promise in sending the Messiah Father, glorify thy son that I may glorify thee. He says in this prayer that the world may know that you have sent me. Jesus' death also glorified the Father because he would give his life in complete obedience and faith. He's our Passover lamb who came to die for our sins. That we might be reconciled to God. And he stayed obedient. And he stayed faithful to what God had called him to do. Throughout his whole life. And how wonderful it would be to have some godly Christians. Who can exit this world saying I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. I'm ready to be offered up. Philippians 2.8 speaks of Christ saying. And being found in fashion as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death. Even the death of the cross. He was obedient all the way. Until he gave up the ghost. He was perfectly obedient to God. And he had faith in his death that God was going to raise him again to life. In John 17, 11, he says, And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to thee. And then in verse 13 there, And now come I to thee. And we've seen this truth repeated in this discourse. Jesus is saying, look, I'm going to die, but I'm going to rise again. And I'm going to go to the Father. And so there's faith involved here as well. Jesus died in obedience and faith. And listen to me this morning. Unless you are raptured out of here one day, we're all going to die. It's appointed unto men once to die. And after this, the judgment. So we not only can bring glory to God in life, but we can also bring glory to God in death. Listen to what Jesus said to Peter at the end of this book. John 21 verses 18 and 19. Verily I say unto thee, when thou wast young, and girded thyself, and walkest whither thou wouldest, but when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee, and carry thee whither thou wouldest not. This spake he, signifying by what death he should glorify God. Jesus says, Peter, you're going to glorify me in your death. We follow the Lord in life, and we need to follow him in death. It's coming. We place our faith in Christ because we believe He will wash our sins away. We place our faith in Christ because we believe He will give us the gift of eternal life that will be with Him for all eternity. But we also understand that this body, this flesh, it has to die first. There's a part of us that can never die. Hallelujah, that's the Spirit. But there's also a part of us which must die. Now, I've had the privilege of watching two godly women depart this world since I've been pastor here. Robin Dustman and Joyce Cord. And they left this world without the fear of death. And it was amazing to watch. We should desire 
to glory Him in life and we should desire to glory Him in death as well. It is in our death, that is the most crucial hour of our testimony. Because that's it after that. What are you going to say on your deathbed? We glorify Him in life. We glorify Him in death. How's your prayer life today? When's the last time you poured your heart out to God and you asked the Lord to glorify you that you might glorify the Father? How's your prayer life? When's the last time you poured your heart out to God? And listen, if there's ever a time that we should be doing that, it's now. Just look around. Doesn't it break your heart that we don't get to do what we once did? How's your prayer life? Are you living for Him today? What's God called you to do? We, God's called us all to do something. Some of you are in business. Some of you are in ministry. We're all called to serve the Lord in some capacity. What is it God has called you to do? Listen, do you remember that He's the source of your strength? He's the source of your hope. Do you seek to glorify God in this life? If not, why not? Say, well, how do I glorify God on my job? Start praying for Him to do it and you'll see. Amen. When's the last time you asked God to glorify you so that you may glorify the Father? Maybe God has elevated you today to a point in life that maybe things have started to seem commonplace. You're used to the blessings that at one time were significant in your life. It used to be a significant thing to ask God for this or that, and now it's an everyday blessing, and we kind of lose sight of the fact that God is still the source of all this, and God kind of gets pushed out with the responsibilities that come in life. Maybe you've been elevated to a position where life's going pretty good and you've forgotten about the days when you used to have to pray for those blessings that now you just take for granted. Maybe you've forgotten that God is to be your help in everything and you just kind of figure out, well, I can figure it out. I can do it. I can make a way. I can Listen, that's what gets us in trouble. Lastly, I have to ask, are you prepared to die today? Looking across this room, I know most of your testimonies, but are you prepared to die today? It's going to happen. Are you prepared to die? Are you prepared to stand before God? You understand when you, when you die, that's it. You're in eternity. There is no purgatory. It's either heaven or hell. Are you prepared to meet God? Has there been a point when God has forgiven you of your sins because you've cried out to Him for salvation? Listen, you don't want to step into eternity on a hope-so salvation. The Bible says, These things have I written unto you that you may know that you have eternal life. So do you know God this morning? Are you prepared for that day? Would you be able to glorify God in death? Or would you be scared upon your deathbed? Would you be gripped with fear on what the future holds when you draw your last breath? Jesus suffered and died for you that you might be saved. He was glorified in life. He was glorified in death. God did keep His word. Christ did come to save sinners. And all you have to do is believe that fact.
The Bible says in Romans 10, 13, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen. But you have to get real with God first. You have to pour your heart out to God. It's not me just leading you in a rote prayer that I've memorized over the years and said, here, if you'll just repeat this after me, you'll be good to go. You got to do business with God. Your heart has to be poured out to God. You need to come to Christ alone for salvation. Understanding you cannot save yourself. Understand He paid it all. I'm going to ask you to respond this morning as the Spirit has led you. Maybe you need to be saved. I'm going to ask you to come forward. Let me know. We'll show you from the Bible how you can know Christ as your Savior. Maybe God's called you to a work and you need to do a better job of glorifying Him in that. Maybe your prayer life isn't what it ought to be. You need to get that right today. We need to have a an effective prayer life. We need to pour our heart out to God. These are unusual times in which we live. And if there was ever a time that we ought to be serious with God, it's now. Our churches are not functioning effectively as they once were. And we need to pray for a return to being able to minister to people like we once did. Don't you miss the days of the church house being packed? Don't you miss the days of the choir? I'm going to have to stop there. I'll end up preaching my sermon tonight. But listen, you respond as God has led you. Let's pray.